0: Welcome to the Macmillan Report. I'm Marilyn Wilkes, your host, and our guest is Pablo Kalmanowitz, a postdoctoral fellow in the political science department at Yale University. He specializes in the political theory of human rights and humanitarianism. Professor Kalmanowitz has written articles and edited volumes on transitional justice, postwar reconstruction, and the regulation of warfare and he's currently working on a book project on the history of the idea of post-war justice. Today we talk with Professor Kalmanovitz about the research he's done on reparations for war damages. Welcome, Professor Kalmanovitz. Thank you, Marilyn. Let's uh, begin with what led you to do this kind of research.
1: Right. Uh, So I I was initially attracted uh, by the idea of transitional justice. Mm -hmm. Uh, and transitional justice is a term used to refer to actions taken to come to terms with the past okay. in the context of a regime transition. So a well-known case is Argentina. Uh, there was a military junta in Argentina from 76 uh, to 83. And um, at the end of that junta, when the junta fell, uh, president <coughs> – sorry, Raul Alfonsín came to power. He was democratically elected, and President Alfonsín had to decide what to do with a legacy of massive atrocities, uh, particular uh, disappearances, extrajudicial killings, um, uh, done by the military during the authoritarian regime. Uh, So he had to make this really hard uh, decision of what to do about that, and he was really facing a a really interesting and difficult dilemma uh, between, on the one hand, uh, securing the transition, making sure that the military would play along and surrender power, Uh, but on the other hand he had to be a defender of the rule of law and democracy. And he had to show all citizens that nobody was going to be uh, above the law, including the military. So he had to prosecute some military, uh, but perhaps not all of them. So there was this really difficult political Mm -hmm. balance between uh, securing the transition, peace, order, and justice. Um, So that led me to think more generally about the question of how or how can we say that the end of a given war, in this case a dirty war, uh, is just or acceptable or, or uh, in some sense uh, decent? Uh, and that's the general question that I want to address, and, uh, and I realize, I discovered that this question has a very long history. And it has not always been the case, as it is today, that that there's a lot of insistence on prosecutions and reparations and truth commissions, and these are really a very strong movement mm-hmm. for coming to terms with the past now. Uh, but if you look at that historically well it's 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 a rather new thing
0: okay sometimes. in your paper um, you look i get guess at the last twenty years or so and th- that this is the time when people really begin to look at war reparations um, talk about your paper and, and give us a little bit of an overview and what you're looking at
1: right so th- yeah so this paper is not historical mm-hmm. uh, and i i start with what i take to be something like a legal factor uh, some people say a soft legal fact But it is a declaration that that the U.N. General Assembly made in 2005 on the right to a remedy and to reparations. And this is a right that is supposed to apply in virtue of international human rights instruments and and the U.N. Charter, in in a way, um, to victims of massive violations of human rights. Uh, And it's a very ambitious uh, statement of of the duty to repair. It includes not, not only actual harms but also Uh, losses of opportunity and and, uh, earning that has been missed because of the violations. So it's only counterfactual losses, also counterfactual losses that are included. And so I took that as a starting point and then contrasted that with the reality of war, which is a lot of destruction, uh, institutional weakness in the states, very scarce resources, like in terms of officers and budget and money and just capacity, state capacity. Mm And I just thought, well, this very ambitious plan that they, or guideline that, that, they, that the UN General Assembly is producing doesn't match the reality of a war. And so I was led to think, okay, so how can we justify, how much can we justify uh, a right of reparations in the context of the aftermath of a war?
0: Mm-hmm. When you say it, it doesn't address the realities of the war, what do you mean by that?
1: Well. Basically, that there are a lot of uh, victims of harm, direct or indirect harm, much more than could be uh, repaired uh, via the resources or with the resources that the state has, Mm -hmm. and also institutional weakness. So states at the end of a war are often – well, they have been ravaged by war, and they are institutionally very weak, so not capable of implementing any or very ambitious uh, reparations project. So if you take that into account, those real constraints, political constraints on mm-hmm. state action, then you have to uh, give up some of these very high expectations that the General Assembly is, is introducing okay. the
0: Okay, and then in your paper, you, you talk about normative accounts of corrective justice. So what do you look at in terms of that?
1: Right. So, so what I do is I, I take the, this legal fact, mm-hmm. which is a statement of principle, and then I contrast that with theories of the justice of reparations or mm-hmm. corrective justice. Uh, and I look at three different approaches. One is a classical standard liberal approach, which, which, which says that reparations should be given in order to protect the value of individual autonomy. And the idea is that if you get reparations fairly soon and proportional to the harm you have suffered, mm-hmm. then that would protect any kind it would minimize the um, level of damage or, or how upset your plans are mm-hmm. by the harm. So the idea is the quicker you get reparations and the the, the, the the more equal those reparations are to the harm you suffer, the better you can carry on with the life you want to have. Okay. Your, so that's individual autonomy. Uh, and what I do uh, about, or what I say from that standpoint is often harm is the, rule rather than the exception in war cases. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people, if not a majority of people, have been harmed. So it is impossible to recover the status quo ante situation for people. It is impossible to uphold autonomy in the way that this liberal theory wants to uphold it. So we have to, in a way, um, accept the, reali- the tragic reality of war and the destruction and the irreparable, really, effect of war on people's lives. And perhaps instead of looking back, coming to terms via reparations, look forward and mm-hmm. think, okay, what's necessary to for people to re- recreate their lives in a decent, more or less egalitarian way? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what I do, especially in the in the second uh, approach that I look at, which is a theory of property, which is again very influential in the liberal tradition, goes back to John Locke, mm-hmm. and and what I argue there is exactly that is that if the the most or a very plausible theory of property would tell us uh, prioritize um, giving everybody an equal opportunity to reconstruct their lives in the aftermath of war Mm -hmm. not so much uh, make sure that past entitlements are uh, observed or respected but more give everyone a chance to start a new life after the war Mm -hmm. on equal terms And finally, the third approach I look at is the idea of re-establishing a well-functioning market. Uh, This is not really a theory of justice. It's more a a, a problem of coordination or or institutional uh, creation of a well-institutionalized market. Mm -hmm. Uh, And one finding that I have that I think is interesting is that this is the account that gives more weight to a program of reparations. Mm -hmm. And the idea is not so much about justice but more about social coordination in the sense of if we want a well-functioning market uh, after a war, then we need to have a focal point uh, that uh, tells us who has what at the end of a war, who is the owner of what good. Mm -hmm. And and so the past provides that focal point in a way. We know who owns what because that's the way it used to be. Uh, But the claim is not really about justice, but more about coordination. Uh, There are aspects of justice involved, uh, if we believe that markets are good for people. It's mm-hmm. a good way of distributing resources or producing more. Uh, but really, it's about knowing who owns what in order to move forward.
0: OK. And what are you suggesting in terms of reparations and the best way to move forward? And and in particular, can you um, use your theory uh, and, uh, in terms of a particular war?
1: Well, so basically, I, I guess the, the main message is uh, healthy doses of skepticism about uh, these, like backward-looking emphasis in, mm-hmm. in recent discourse. Uh, there are good reasons to be less focused on the past and more focus on the future and reconstruction, on, on, and that may mean sacrificing past entitlements. But I, what I'm arguing is that that's not that doesn't seem so serious or so grave morally. Um, Another, I think, important uh, or contribution that I want to make is to look at war at the tragedy of a war, like a lot of this discourse sometimes seems to have this hope of erasing the effects of a war, going back before the time of the war, and well that's not possible. And so it's, there's a, a message of also just soberly ac- accepting the, the, the losses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and finally there's also this connection between reparations and private property and the market which is there but it's not often made explicit and I think it's a really interesting connection and it's something worth discussing and thinking about if a private property regime is the only acceptable way that a country uh, should adopt at the end of a war. Maybe there's collective property or traditional uses of property um, and those are worth thinking about also. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, Turn to like actual cases. So uh, there are two cases, I guess I I would talk about. Okay,
0: good. It's good just to talk specifics, right? Because it gives people uh, a good idea, really, of what you're what you're talking about.
1: Right. So, so the first one is is Colombia. And I'm I'm from Colombia, and Mm -hmm. this is really the case that got me started with with, with all this. So recently, Colombia has uh, passed a very ambitious uh, land restitution law Mm -hmm. uh, in Congress, and there's there's been a, a huge problem of internal displacement in the country. Uh, About between 3.5 and 5 million people has been internally displaced, Mm -hmm. which is a a good chunk of the whole population, about 10 percent.
0: And how has it been displaced?
1: So basically, so there's been an armed conflict going on for decades.
0: Okay. And is it still going on? Yeah. Yes, okay.
1: And one of the strategy of the armed actors has been to push people outside of their region, so thinking Mm -hmm. that they're supporting the other side or just because they want to appropriate their land, or people just run away because they're scared. So it may be intentional or non-intentional, but I'm sorry, the effect of this country, has of this war, I'm sorry, has been huge, massive uh, displacement or a, a, a wave of forced migration to the cities, from the countryside to the cities. Mm-hmm. And now the, 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 the government and the Congress, ha- uh, they want to implement this law to uh, give back the land to people who have mm-hmm. lost it. And in a way create incentives for them to return to the countryside.
0: I'm sorry, but if the war is still going on, this armed conflict is stu- still going on, right. why did the people move from the country to the city? Is it because it's safer in the city? Right. Okay, so if they move back to the country and the conflict is still going on, how is that going to help them?
1: It's not clear. Okay. Right, so one one, perhaps the main objection or preoccupation with this law is how are you going to protect these people if they return, mm-hmm. because the war is not over indeed. Right. Um, and it's, so the government is making efforts, but it's very clear that the, it still do, doesn't have the power, the capacity to really uh, guarantee security mm-hmm. for returnees. Okay. Uh, so there is that. There's also the fact that people may not have jobs when they come back, so irrigation systems, roads, markets in the in the countryside may be May have been lost or destroyed or sure. um, eliminated for, by the war, uh, and so there's this very hard dilemma. Like, should the government invest in returning for these people, or should it rather create opportunities for them to resettle in cities and become urbanites? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, so that's a case. And what my theory would say is something like, well, they should be given the opportunity, but the um, emphasis on returning perhaps shouldn't be as high Uh, uh, and perhaps there should be a sober acceptance of the weakness of the government and the Mm -hmm. fact of the state really and the fact that they cannot really um, create order and security in the countryside and then a second best option would be to provide them with all the resources necessary to make a living in the city. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's accept the, the sad Fact that the government, the state, has no control in all areas, and give the best possible opportunities to people who are in the cities as settlers to become established and have a good life there.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, Uh, how does your theory work when it's not all taking place in one country, where it's two different countries warring?
1: Yeah. So that's in this in this particular paper, I don't look at that case. I, I keep it all within one state because the international case is hard because there is the issue of interstate reparations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and right now, um, so there, there is uh, some principles that say that an aggressor state has to pay reparations to, a, an, a, to, the, to the injured state, mm-hmm. but that kind of consideration I'm not really looking at in okay. this piece. Uh,
0: okay, and did you have another country you could cite in terms of specifics? Right,
1: so there's another interesting case which is East Timor. Okay. Uh, and what has happened in East Timor is, is, is really – it's a really complicated situation because – so East Timor was a Portuguese colony mm-hmm. until the – I don't remember, like early 70s. Then the Portuguese left and Indonesia invaded the country. Mm-hmm. And there was this occupation mm-hmm. that was – Indonesia claimed that they had just you know, incorporated mm-hmm. East Timor to their state. But East Timur, the East Timorese didn't accept that and the international community didn't accept that. And so there was a referendum in, I think, two thousand. Right?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, but didn't a mass genocide took place in that country? Correct. It
1: was uh, no. Well, so what happened is that there was this referendum, and the East Timorese overwhelmingly said we want independence. Mm-hmm. And when the Indonesians were leaving, they destroyed everything. Mm-hmm. There was this huge, especially material destruction, but also massive rapes and killings. And mm-hmm. it was a really barbaric uh, way of leaving the country. And. Timor is already a very poor place. Uh, so it was, they, among other things, they destroyed the uh, land registry. So nobody knew who, owned, ah, who what. owned what. So, and then there was a really uh, h- well, difficult challenge With so there was a UN administration came mm-hmm. in to basically perform as a state, as a government. And they had to decide, okay, how are we going to repair to give people back their land? But they d- the, the difficulty is that do we look all the way back to the Portuguese uh, times of, you know, when the, when the sure. Portuguese were the masters mm-hmm. or do we look at a land owning when the Indonesians were occupying or do we look at traditional relationship with the land. So there are three different layers of title and basically they don't know and there's been a lot of um, or some work trying to go back to Portuguese times mm-hmm. but that to me seems counterintuitive and, and unnecessary, really. And so my take on that would be, no, emphasize the present and try to create conditions that would make people who are there now have Mm -hmm. a good life. And again, don't look look to the past so
0: But let me ask you this. If if I was living in East Timor and I had 20 acres of land, for instance, and my neighbor only had 10 acres of land, how do you care for that situation? Because if now we're just going, we're not we're trying to make everything not go back as far how can i be assured as the one who owns the more land that i will still have that or does that just go out the window and everyone will be given an equal amount of land
1: well so there is there is a worry that if if you do that like equalize land completely Mm -hmm. you would create a lot of uh, a lot of uncertainty and Mm -hmm. chaos and people it will be very hard to know what, do, what you have. And, and that goes back to, the, to this idea of restoring the market. Mm-hmm. If you do that, then you undermine the market, and you okay. will create a lot of resistance probably I mean, for people who own more. Right. So probably you cannot do that, really. So there's a constraint on that, and I think the constraint comes from the need to have s- some level of certainty. Okay. Uh, but on the other hand, if you have 20 acres, your neighbor has 10, and you decided to leave the country, you went, let's say, you went to Europe, to mm-hmm. Portugal, I don't know, and, and you haven't been back in years. Uh, and then you, you, you hear that the Indonesians have left and you say, well, maybe I should go, ba- go mm-hmm. back, reclaim my land. Right. I think if you have been away for so long and you are not living in Timor, and you just want to have the land in order to uh, you know, rent it or something, mm-hmm. then I would say your claim is weak. And maybe your neighbor should have more land because he's there and he's working. Or maybe other people who are landless should have your land because mm-hmm. they are willing and able to work it. So there are some – so I propose a lot more nuanced palaces, you know, like mm-hmm. a blanket, you know, nullification of all property and everything will have – everyone will have the same. But it's more like, what's your commitment? What, what is your present situation? How, how are you – what are you planning to do with this land? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think those things are important.
0: Right, okay. Yeah. Um, tell me how the work you've done on war reparations uh, fits into your larger book project. <clears throat>
1: So it, it's interesting because, in in a way, one important component of this work I'm doing is to trace the history of mm-hmm. this idea of war reparations. And uh, so I, I begin in the in the 16th century. Basically, mm-hmm. there's this uh, Spanish natural law uh, theorists who were the ones who basically began to think about just war and mm-hmm. what is a just war. They also thought about what is a post war, uh, sorry, a post, yeah, a just post war context, mm-hmm. and they said that. In, in the case of a war, if your property or yourself have been have suffered harm or damage, then you had to put up with it It was bad luck and the burden the burden of reconstructing or fixing that should be on you like mm-hmm. there is no duty to repair in the state there is talk of a duty to repair later more in the eighteenth century and it's put under the umbrella of social solidarity there mm-hmm. should be a solidarity in the state should the, such such that if someone had suffered harm, then fellow citizens will help. Uh, and it's, it, it works at a, as a – you could see it as an insurance mechanism, mm-hmm. more or less as when a natural catastrophe hits. There's solidarity, and you help. I mean, right. you, were, you were spared, but another one was not. Yes, so
0: that's a good example. Um, let me just clarify, you're still talking about within an individual country, not right. countries against countries.
1: Well, in that case, it, so to the extent that a country, let's say in an international war, if an aggressor cannot, is not, you know, doesn't have the means to fully repair mm-hmm. all the damages that it has caused, then there has to be some level of reconstruction mm-hmm. inside the state. So even if there is some level of international repressions, probably you need to uh, resort to social solidarity of some sort, because just because the destruction outmatches the ability to to reconstruct, yep. you know, states are uh, typically don't have those resources, right. or wars typically are more destructive than mm-hmm. that. Uh, so even in that case, there is probably an appeal to social solidarity. Uh, but in, in the in the 18th and 19th century, it was like a weak principle. It's not. They, they, they typically say this is not part of international law. It's more a duty of you know morality, and it should be done. To put that kind of to do that in international law, and to say it should go as far as lost opportunities. That's a really new development, and it's much more ambitious than the, the people in the eighteenth and nineteenth century were, and. And I am actually a bit skeptical. I think they are—they are too ambitious. They are too utopians, if you want. And probably something closer to the 19th century model seems more plausible and mm-hmm. acceptable.
0: More realistic, right? Now, in in doing your research, are in addition to the actual political theories around reparations, are you looking at what actually happened in each country and incorporating that into your work?
1: Well, I. So far, not as much. I've been looking more at the theories, but I want to do that. Uh-huh. I want to look more. Because that would
0: be very interesting yeah. to see what the theory are and, and what actually was what applied. What the practice was, right. Yeah. right so that's, right. that's part of my Okay, agenda. well, good luck with that, and thank, thank you so you. much for being here with us and sharing some of, uh, some of your work. Thank you. For more information about Professor Kamanovic, please visit our webpage at yale.edu backslash Macmillan Report. Be sure to join us again for another episode of the Macmillan Report, made possible through funding from the Whitney and Betty McMillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale.